This episode of Value Hive is brought to you by Tegas. If you enjoy listening to Value Hive, you'll love the Tegas product. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available expert interviews on all the public and private companies that you care about. All you have to do is log in. So if you're tired of high cost and time consuming expert research calls, give Tegas a try and see for yourself why many of the most trusted and well-respected hedge funds, mutual funds, family offices, allocators, and VCs rely on Tegas to scale their expert research and to get the critical information they need faster than ever. You can sign up for a free trial at tegas.co forward slash value hive. That's tegas.co forward slash value hive. And as a personal anecdote, I use Tegas literally every single day. It's the first resource I use when I start researching uh, a new investment, and it's one of the last things I do uh, before I finish up rounding out my research, and I know you'll love it as much as I do. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org slash global dash investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global dash investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. Hey guys, it's Brandon. This week we have another edition of the Q3 2022 uh, Value Investor Audibles series. This week we are uh, reading from Nordstrom Capital, Praetorian Capital, and Moran Capital. Uh, I think you guys are going to like these ideas. Um, I sent out uh, in my uh, Value Investing Letter Recap series on Wednesday. Uh, I actually sent out an idea from each of these letters, and so this will have this will give you a chance to listen to. Um, each letter in its entirety. Uh, I hope you enjoy this series uh, as much as I do. And if there are any letters that you want read, please shoot me a DM on Twitter at MarketPlunger1. Uh, so once again, I hope you enjoy these and let's get after it. This is Nordstern Capital's third quarter 2022 investor letter. Dear Nordstern Capital partners and friends, the third quarter was disappointing for our partnership on the surface. The underperformance has three main reasons. One, significant drop of Embracer Group's share price, two, significant decline of the Swedish krona versus the U.S. dollar, and three, commodity price weakness due to recession fears. I'm convinced that these same three themes that were strong headwinds last quarter are the foundation of strong performance over the next quarters and years. Every investor should understand that temporary stock price underperformance is incidental. The current state of world affairs is laden with extreme risks. I am convinced that our holdings are well-suited to not only withstand whatever may come, but to thrive in most scenarios that may unfold. Future. I believe the next quarters will demonstrate the following. 1. Embracer Group will generate strong cash flows, uplist to the main, main stock exchange, and will attract a new slate of more sophisticated buyers. 
Two, the drop of the Swedish krona will boost the earnings of our Swedish companies, in contrast to many U.S.-listed companies which might experience FX-related earnings downgrades. Three, the world suffers from commodity shortages. Physical markets remain tight. Our commodity businesses are cash cows and can use the recession fears and, dep and depressed prices as an opportunity to buy back large amounts of their own stock. Risks. Quote, it is not about risks. It is about recognizing that you have to make good moves. Close quote. Gary Kasparov, former chess world champion. Every epoch has winners and losers. We are at the beginning of a new paradigm. We face severe conflicts between world powers. Central banks have long nurtured moral hazard, and governments have created an economic mess. Contrary to current financial market expectations, it is my firm belief that inflation will remain elevated. Money supply has been inflated globally on a grand scale. The supply of physical goods and services cannot increase at the same pace. As a short-term remedy, the Federal Reserve, or Fed, is now on a mission to restrict demand. This recipe might kill inflation in theory. However, I believe that Fed action will have its limits in practice. Recession pains, mounting interest costs on government debt, and financial market turbulences are going to pressure the Fed sooner or later to change course. In my view, this is going to happen before the U.S. can meaningfully deleverage or reduce money supply. Nonetheless, the U.S. is clearly the least ugly bird. The Australian Central Bank already made a dovish shift. The Bank of England morphed from hawk to dove to bail out the country's overleveraged pension funds. Japan's Central Bank is desperately trying to suppress long-term yields in tandem with propping up a tumbling yen. Both tasks require actions that contradict each other. More impossible still is the task of the European Central Bank, the most likely winner of the ugly contest. The Eurozone inflation is higher than in the U.S. The continent has no energy security and no political unity. Instead, it has regions with unsustainable debt, a faltering currency, and an escalating war at its door. The ECB responded by raising interest rates and preparing more bond buying to support periphery countries. A contradiction. What happens when the integrity of the euro is called into question? China is the ugly duckling. The country is suffering the worst property market downturn since the 90s. COVID lockdowns stifled the economy. The youth unemployment rate reached 20%. Hostilities with the U.S. hamper trade. The recent National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party did not resolve, but exacerbated reservations held by the West. Nonetheless, the country could turn into a swan. Inflation is still low. Monetary policy is still healthy. Or it might become a black swan. Russia invading Ukraine is bad, but China invading Taiwan could plunge the world into disaster. In any event, because of China's outsized demand and manufacturing power, this bird will determine a great deal of where global inflation is headed. The risks are plentiful. We are likely entering an era of stagflation. It is paramount to prepare for what may happen. To find the best moves, we adhere to what we believe is fundamentally true. Truth. Quote, Boil things down to their fundamental truths and reason up from there. Close quote. Elon Musk from a 2013 TED Talk. The fundamental truth, regardless of inflation, recession, or central bank action, in our view, is value equals sum of present values of all future cash in slash outflows received from or paid to the investment. If price paid is less than the value received, good returns will follow, independent of stock price movements. The world is short on raw materials and energy in this and energy in the short and medium term. And finally, commodity prices are determined by supply and demand. Opportunity. 
The world is short on raw materials and energy. Nordstern Capital has increased its exposure to raw materials and energy. Recession fears may temporarily suppress demand and prices. The fundamental issue, however, is a sustainable lack of supply caused by decade-long underinvestment. The shortages cannot be resolved in the short to medium term. Sharing thoughts. Nordstern Capital is Nordstern Capital in conversation with Martin Fewings, head of HR at Glencore. This is a quote from um, their conversation. It is hard to see any solutions in the near term that reset energy costs back to lower historical levels. We are short of energy and any solution will take quite some time. Any recovery from recession is going to involve some kind of stimulus, which will increase demand again. Nothing has been done to solve the supply side. No one invests in the next generation of mine supply. There's a huge gap in supply versus future demand, and still no one is doing anything about it. Glencore is giving back cash. One cannot choose where natural resources are, but even trying to build refining or processing capacity in the West is very difficult. And then it goes back to the letter. Currently suppressed stock prices offer a wonderful opportunity for our commodity businesses to buy back their own shares. For instance, Algoma Steel Group, ticker symbol ASTL, reduced its diluted share count this year from 177 million to 111 million. Nonetheless, ASTL share price has come down 50% because US HRC steel prices per ton declined in the past year from 2000 to currently 713. And for those that missed it, uh, there was a uh, Twitter spaces I did on SPAC ideas and someone pitched ASTL. So um, I will link in the show notes to that Twitter spaces so you can go check out that thesis. Back to the letter. Sharing thoughts. Nordstern Capital in conversation with Rajar Marwa, CFO at Algoma Steel. ASTL anticipates USHRC steel prices per ton to average $800 over the long term. At this price, once EAF is completed, ASTL expects to produce $450 million in EBITDA and $250 million in free cash flow. Today, back to the letter. Today, ASTL has 500 million in net cash and a market capitalization of about 700 million. The company is profitable even in the current recessionary environment. The CFO expects annual mid-cycle free cash flow generation greater than the current ASTL enterprise value. I'm going to say that again. The CFO expects annual mid-cycle free cash flow generation to be greater than the current ASTL enterprise value. It's pretty wild. Anyway, back to the letter. This is one illustrative example. ASTL is not alone. Many present-day commodity businesses are cash and earnings rich and can use weak stock prices for aggressive buybacks. Stell Coal Holdings, ticker symbol STLC, recently offered to buy back 48% of its company's shares in one swoop. The company started two attempts and offered above market prices, but most shareholders did not want to sell. STLC only managed to buy back 20.5% of its shares. The rest of the money might be returned in the form of dividends. The more stock prices drop, the more shares these companies can buy back, and the better the future cash flows to its investors will be. Embracer Group, Buyers Incoming. Quote, my experience is that difficult times create the greatest opportunities. Close quote. Lars Wingaforce, CEO of Embracer Group. Embracer Group, or Embracer, has completed more than 80 acquisitions since its IPO in 2016. The company spent more than $10 billion on these acquisitions altogether. In addition, Embracer spent close to $1 billion on game development projects. Thus, the group invested more than $11 billion over the last six years. 
However, at today's stock price, the market values the enterprise at around $8 billion. Either the market massively undervalues Embracer Group, or CEO Lars Wingafor has managed to destroy 30% of the invested capital over the last six years, which is true. Acquisition multiples of operative units, including undiscounted out-year earnouts, average around 10 times EV to EBIT. Acquired IPs include evergreens such as The Lord of the Rings, Tomb Raider, or Sudoku.com. The operating groups grew EBIT at 32% since joining Embracer. Older acquisitions can be well assessed, can be well assessed today. For instance, Coffee Stain, acquired for $100 million in 2018, sold more than $200 million of the game Valheim alone. Milestone, acquired for $90 million in 2019, sold about 1.5 million units of the premium game Hot Wheels Unleashed at a price point of $49.99 within the last year alone, not counting sales of the 71 DLCs. High returns on the purchase prices of almost all acquisitions that closed more than two years ago are obvious. Embracer's average return on new game releases is about three times the investment. For recent games, however, that average has dropped. AAA games, Saints Row, Embracer's most expensive development to date, was a disappointment. Acquisitions made over the last two years have had higher price tags and are harder to judge. For instance, the Western studios of Square Enix were bought in August for $300 million, but are not expected to contribute any profits over the following two years. Uncertainty regarding the newer acquisitions, performance of recent releases, and doubts about synergies in Embracer's decentralized model led short-sighted shareholders to sell Embracer's stock. Sharing thoughts. Nordstrom Capital in conversation with Lars Wingafors, CEO at Embracer Group. On acquisitions, this is Lars. Every acquisition has a business plan and assumptions about future cash flows. Execution is continuously evaluated regarding the plan and the capital or and the invested capex. Embracer acquires businesses based on their standalone cash flows, not based on future synergies. Embracer did not pay premium for IP rights except for the Lord of the Rings, which I guess that kind of makes sense. For instance, Dark Horse came with hundreds of IPs and has had and has a lot of additional potential upside from transmedia, guidebooks, etc. However, the purchase price for Dark Horse was based on a reasonable multiple of the current cash flow. Allocating $3 billion to acquire Asmodee and putting debt on the balance sheet increased the group's overall business risk. In hindsight, timing might not have been optimal. Lars Wingfors refuses to account for any potential synergies in valuing deals. However, he does believe that there is added value in leveraging the combined group. The verdict is still out. If Embracer were to fail to deliver on that promise, then shareholders might have to discuss in the future whether breaking up the group or selling assets would create higher value. So far, in general, acquisitions are performing according to expectations. And I know I said earlier that this is Lars speaking, but I believe this is both of them, so I don't want to put words into Lars's mouth. All right, anyways, on performance. Certain studios have been underperforming. There are various options. For instance, a change in management, putting labels together, reducing capital allocation. Capital allocation needs to be based on performance. Embracer needs to ensure that companies, particularly those that have tighter margins and higher cost bases, safeguard their margins. Embracer promised earnouts based on organic growth. If studios don't deliver, then the group will claw back equity. If a team of people cannot make money, then the group will make adjustments. On synergies. 
One of the strategic reasons to acquire all these IPs and assets is the belief that the combined pipeline of games is worth something for other stakeholders and platforms. There is value in securing an amount of content for the coming years. If Embracer were to sign 15% of the industry's content to one customer, then that would be a problem for the other platforms. Embracer is in a unique position and can sign a lot of titles. Platforms might pay premium for the average outcome of such a pipeline. A platform deal with one or several parties could mean for Embracer higher margins, more predictable cash flows, greater profitability, lower capex, and more revenues. Embracer is targeting to release 110 new PC console games this financial year. It has a pipeline of 222 PC console games in development, has an unprecedented depth and breadth in the video game industry, is currently operating more than a dozen franchises that return more than five times the invested capital, and has a history of successfully, of exceptionally successful acquisitions. Embracer has 1.235 billion shares outstanding, 1.343 billion if the maximum potential future earnouts and all recent acquisitions are included. The company has about $2 billion in debt at 1% annual interest. Compare this rate with the junk of so-called unprofitable tech companies. Telling. Embracer's net debt is about $2.3 billion, including future cash earnouts and all recent acquisitions. Embracer provided EBIT forecasts for the next two financial years. The company targets to return to net debt ratio of less than one. Thus, some free cash flow will probably be used for debt reduction. Embracer's game development investments over the last eight quarters averaged three times the game development amortization expense. We estimate that maintenance, maintenance capex for the PC console segment is approximately equal to the game development amortization expense. To value Embracer, we use the maximum dilutive share count and assume that 50% of the free cash flow over the next three years will be used for debt reduction and 17% for growth capex. The company is releasing two AAA games in the current financial year. Embracer is expected to release an average of at least eight AAA games per year, which is a ton, in the following years in order to reach the stated goal of over 25 AAA titles until March 2026. This pipeline indicates substantial long-term organic growth. For the financial year 2025, we used the company's EBIT forecasts for recent acquisitions and 13% EBIT growth over full year 2024 for the rest of the group. Embracer is expected to continue double-digit organic growth. Management expects to keep taking market share in the video games industry. Embracer share price today values this cash flow machine 2.5 years out at five times EV to EBIT. We are buyers. However, we won't be the only ones. Before this year is out, Embracer is expected to uplist to the main Swedish stock market. This will bring new buyers. Several funds are restricted from buying Embracer as long as the shares are listed on a, quote, Mickey Mouse, close quote, stock exchange. This is about to change. Furthermore, Embracer might become a candidate for various index funds following the uplisting. Inclusion into the OMX 30 would certainly mean another spurt of buyers. Embracer invested $11 billion. Enterprise value today is $8 billion. Is Lars Wingfors just a miserable capital allocator? The financial markets have a clear answer to this question right now. We take the other side. Time will tell. And before we finish the letter, I had a friend on the podcast. Uh, this was months ago. David Kay, I believe. He's a game developer, game investor, and he pitched Embracer. So I'm linking that podcast as well in the show notes. So if you want to learn more about Embracer from the actual game developer side, you can go in and check that out. It's actually one of my favorite podcasts that I've recorded.
All right, back to the letter. Trust. The Nordstrom Capital Partnership can flourish thanks to our partner's trust, which empowers us to ignore short-term stock price volatility and to focus on decision-making for long-term investment success. I'm convinced that the dedicated focus on the long-term cash flow prospects of our investments will result in better long-term returns. Long-term oriented accredited investors who are not partners yet are encouraged to apply. Looking forward to hearing from you all. Sincerely, Johannes Arnold. This is Harris Kupperman's Praetorian Capital Q3 2022 letter. During the third quarter of 2022, the fund declined by negative 0.3% net of fees. The first of three quarter for the first three quarters of 2022, the fund's performance net of fees was negative 2.87. Given the fund's concentrated portfolio structure and focus on asymmetric opportunities, I anticipate that the fund will be rather volatile from quarter to quarter. During the third quarter, many of our core portfolio positions declined for a second consecutive quarter. This decline represents a long overdue pullback within a portfolio that I believe remains on trend and undervalued. Offsetting this decline in our core portfolio, our event-driven book produced a small positive return. This subpar return from the event-driven book is mostly a reflection of the decision on my part to keep overall event-driven exposure at a reduced level, leading us to take fewer positions than normal in the event-driven book. Additionally, my event-driven strategies tend to perform better in a volatile or rising market as they are primarily long-biased. I am hopeful that the remainder of 2022 will lead to a recovery in our event-driven performance, but intend to keep exposure rather reduced until the market evolves from a downtrending one to one with more volatility or preferably an uptrending one. During 2020 and 2021, this fund relied strongly on the event-driven book to produce returns and help to offset pullbacks in our core book. The lack of event-driven returns over the past two quarters clearly has been a hindrance to the fund's overall returns. Like many things in markets, event-driven returns tend to be cyclical, and after several anemic quarters, I'd anticipate a recovery at some point. As noted over the past few quarters, I would like to caution you that our portfolio has become somewhat lopsided in terms of exposure to inflation assets, particularly with a focus on energy assets. Partly this is due to disproportionate appreciation of those assets as a percentage of the portfolio, and partly this is a result of what I see as the most attractive opportunity set in the current market. As commodities tend to be more volatile than the overall market, it bears mentioning that this increased exposure is likely to increase overall volatility for our fund, particularly as the Fed Reserve has embarked on a rate cycle that is specifically targeting inflation assets. Market Views I have genuinely been surprised at the vigor with which the Federal Reserve has raised rates in their campaign to quash inflation. For my entire investing career, the Fed has been dovish, standing by and ready to reassure speculators at every market gyration. For the first time in my career, they're actively targeting the stock market in an effort to create a recession and reduce the wealth effect when it comes to consumer spending. This is a terrifying policy change that was unexpected by most market observers, including myself. At the same time, I feel that they have no real heart for this campaign. As political animals, they'll be forced to pivot after they succeed in breaking something. Unfortunately, breaking something may lead to scary outcomes in the shorter term, and we've kept our exposures at reduced levels until it is clear that they're ready to pivot.
When they do pivot, I believe that energy will be the primary beneficiary as both oil and uranium currently exhibit structural deficits that will be difficult to overcome absent substantial increases in capital spending. In fact, I think that the magnitude of the movements in energy pricing will stun people who are accustomed to gradual changes in commodity price regimes. If anything, the volatility in European energy prices ought to be a wake-up call for all market participants. It would seem that with structural deficits and rapidly growing demand, the roles have adjusted, and many investors are unprepared for the change. To me, this creates opportunity. Unfortunately for the Fed, higher energy prices will feed into higher structural inflation levels, and at some point the Fed will have to decide if they want to continue fighting inflation, which is likely impossible to quash outside of a global depression that dramatically reduces energy, energy demand, or if they want to adjust their mandate and accept an increased level of inflation. Despite them clinging to their inflation-fighting mandate all year, I believe they have no desire to inflict a depression on voters. They'll eventually pivot and accept dramatically higher inflation levels while continuing to subsidize interest rates to advert the depression that they seem fixated on creating. As a result, we have continued to increase our exposure to U.S. housing on this pullback, as that will be a prime beneficiary of this set of macroeconomic outcomes. Thoughts on Portfolio Valuations Despite only experiencing a negative 2.87 net decline in our fund since the start of the year, many of our largest positions have experienced far more dramatic declines and now represent unusual value. As a way of demonstrating the magnitude of the declines, as of the end of the third quarter, these are our top five positions and the declines experienced from their peak price points during 2022. He has Sprott, uh, which is the Uranium Trust, that's down 26% from peak. Joe, down 49% from peak. Builders First Choice, down 32%. Valeris, down 23%. And BNO, down 26%. Now, you should be asking yourself how it is possible that so many positions have declined dramatically, yet the fund hasn't performed demonstrably worse. The answer would be a combination of continued gains from the event-driven book, realized gains on a number of profitable investments, and loss, loss mitigation strategies when trading around core positions. Additionally, we did not own Builder or BNO at the start of the year, so there are new positions we purchased at depressed prices. Absent these factors, our returns for the year would have been a good deal worse. While the percentage decline from the peak price in a year is a somewhat arbitrary way to think about the portfolio's return, I think it is important to point out that the portfolio itself is doing a whole lot better than its larger components. Additionally, the magnitude of the declines from the peak prices is likely indicative of the relative value inherent in our portfolio. As an absolute performance vehicle, I believe that a benchmark would be foolish to use when referencing this fund's performance. At the same time, it's hard to ignore the fact that many global equity and bond markets are down dramatically, and our fund is down a good deal less despite being more than 100% net long for most of the year and rarely utilizing shorts or hedges. I believe this is due to my constant focus on sectors that are positively inflecting with strong macro tailwinds. History has shown that despite what happens in global economies or geopolitics, there's always a bull market somewhere. The key is to identify those bull markets and then find the companies within those markets that offer exponential upside with a reduced opportunity for a permanent loss of capital. Discipline in this regard often trumps simple valuation, as cheap stocks can always get cheaper. Meanwhile, those with strong tailwinds rarely stay cheap for long. As a result of focusing on inflecting trends, we've, stepped, we've sidestepped a good deal of the carnage in global risk markets while capturing returns from the event-driven book. 
As a result, I think that we've set ourselves up for a continuation of the various trends that we are most fixated on. While history only somewhat repeats when it comes to the markets, my experience has been that strong trends often struggle to produce price price positive performance during periods of overall market weakness. Then, when there is a pause in the decline of the overall market, those positions that decline the least with the broader market tend to lead the next leg charge higher. The overall strength of many of our positions is indicative to me that we may be setting up for a similar explosive move higher in our portfolio positions when the market eventually bottoms. For now, my focus is on avoiding unforced errors, keeping exposure down, and being prepared to dramatically increase our exposure to inflation assets when the Fed finally pauses in its rate cycle. Russian Securities During the last quarter, this letter, I gave an update on our Russian securities positions and noted that we have moved them into a side pocket and marked them all at zero. Nothing has changed regarding the side pocket or the mark on the positions. However, we did succeed in removing the GDR wrapper from three of our Russian positions and now own Russian shares. Our fourth position is a Cypret company, and thus far, we have not been able, we have not been capable of removing the GDR wrapper. Fortunately, it does not appear to be at the same risk of disappearing if we do not remove the wrapper. While it may require some time until we can liquidate these positions, we believe that we'll ultimately realize sizable gains on them. Operational Updates As the fund continues to grow with quarter-end assets under management of approximately $162 million, we have taken steps to strengthen our infrastructure and improve our research ability. As you may be aware, we recently moved to a new office space in Racon, Puerto Rico. This is a big improvement from running the fund out of our respective homes. We needed the space as we have recently added three equity analysts, Brandon Coffin, Michael Haddad, and Osman Poroy, to the team. We, have also, we also have space for additional staffing as we continue to grow. As of January 1st, we expect to have nine full-time staff in Puerto Rico, including Lauren and Nick Cosen, whom you may have likely interacted with if you contributed capital into the fund in the past year. It took a long time to get into this office, and the combination of supply chain issues along with Hurricane Fiona pushed our timeline back even farther. The office is complete with a, back, with a backup generator and internet redundancies, further hardening our systems. I'm super excited that we are finally all set up and in one place. I believe strongly that we are now positioned for much more efficient and in-depth work at the fund level as a result of all being together, finally. Position Review Top five position weightings at quarter end from largest to smallest. Uranium basket. It may take some time still, but I believe that society will eventually settle on nuclear power as a compromise solution for baseload power generation. This will come at a time when there is a deficit of uranium production compared with growing demand. As above ground stocks are consumed, uranium prices should appreciate towards the marginal cost of production. Additionally, there is currently an entity named Sprott Physical Uranium Trust that is aggressively issuing shares through an at-the-market offering in order to purchase uranium. I believe that these uranium purchases will accelerate the price realization function by sequestering much of the available above-ground stockpile at a time when utilities have run down their inventories and need substantial purchases to restock. The combination of these factors ought to lead to a dramatic increase in the price of uranium as it will take at least two years for incremental su supply to come online, even if the restart decision were made today. While most of our exposure to physical uranium is within the Sprott Trust, because it allows us to express this view with reduced risk, we also own shares of Kazatomprom. I am well aware that mining is one of the riskiest businesses out there, but Kazatomprom is the lowest cost diversified producer globally with incredible scale in what is a highly consolidated industry. 
At the same time, I recognize that we take on certain risks when owning a company engaged in mineral extraction, especially in a company like Kazakhstan that can be politically unstable at times. That said, I believe that the recent change in government will do little to impact the operating environment in Kazakhstan through the tax rate, though the tax rate may expand moderately. Ironically, uranium will be a prime beneficiary of sanctions on Russia, as Russia is one of the world's largest enrichers of uranium. As the West is forced to enrich more of the uranium that ultimately goes into reactors, underfeeding of tails will flip to an overfeeding of tails. The net effect could be anywhere between 10 and 30% of the global supply of uranium disappearing, which may dramatically accelerate the timing of my thesis while increasing the ultimate magnitude of the upward swing in uranium prices. Energy basket. In 2020, when oil traded below zero, drilling activity ground to a halt and many energy service providers declared bankruptcy. Many of these businesses had teetered on the verge of bankruptcy for years due to reduced demand and over-leveraged balance sheets. The bankruptcies led to consolidation and reduced future industry capacity, removing future competition in the recovery. With oil prices now at multi-year highs, I believe that demand for drilling and other services will recover. While producers have been slow to increase spending on exploration, despite dramatic recoveries in energy prices, I believe that this only extends the timing on the, on the thesis. In the end, the only way to reduce energy prices is to see a dramatic increase in global oil field service spending. Any postponement of the spending only leads to higher prices and more wealth transfer from the global economy to the oil producers, which will likely end up resulting in an increase in spending on exploration and production. We purchase many of these positions at fractions of the equipment's replacement cost, despite restored balance sheets and positive operating cash flow. As spending in the sector recovers, I believe that the potential for cash flow will become more apparent and this equipment will trade up to valuations closer to replacement cost. Oil futures, futures, and ETF options and call spreads. I believe that years of reduced capital expenditures along with ESG restricting capital access, combined with Western governments that are openly hostile to fossil fuels, have created an environment for dramatically higher oil prices. While we could purchase oil producers, I feel it is far more conservative to simply own the physical commodity itself. We own December 2025 oil futures, along with various futures calls and call spreads, an ETF and ETF call, call options and call spreads. I believe that this leverage play on oil gives us the most upside to oil and ultimately inflation while exposing us to reduce risk when compared to producers. St. Joe, ticker symbol Joe, J-O-E. Joe owns approximately 175,000 acres in the Florida Panhandle. It has been widely known that Joe traded for a tiny fraction of its liquidation value for years, but without a catalyst, it was always perceived to be dead money. Over the past few years, the population of the Panhandle has hit a critical mass where the Panhandle now has a center of gravity that is attracting people who want to live in one of the prettiest places in the country with zero state income tax and, and few of the problems of large cities. The oddity of the current disdain for so-called value investments is that many of them are growing quite fast. I believe that Joe will grow revenue at 30% to 50% each year for the foreseeable future, while earning while earnings growth growing at a much faster clip. Meanwhile, I believe shares trade at single-digit multiples on adjusted funds from operations looking out to 2024, while substantial asset value is tossed in for free. Besides the valuation, growth, and high return on invested capital, why else do I like Joe? For starters, the land tends to appreciate rapidly during periods of high inflation, particularly an inflationary period where interest rates are likely to remain suppressed by the Federal Reserve. 
More importantly, I believe we are about to witness a massive population migration as people with means choose to flee big cities for somewhere peaceful. I suspect that every convolution of urban chaos and or tax the rich scheming will launch Joe's shares higher, and it will ultimately be seen as the way to play the stream of very wealthy refugees fleeing for somewhere better. Builder's first choice. Builders produces and distributes building materials primarily for the home building industry. It trades at low single-digit cash flow multiples on recent earnings and is using that cash flow to rapidly repurchase shares. One could say that the low multiple is due to peak cyclical earnings. I take a different view and believe that we're in the early stages of a long-term housing boom caused by migration to low state taxes, low tax states, along with a catch-up phase as home construction rates were below trend line over the past decade. I believe that the U.S. needs needs in excess of 1 million new single-family homes each year just to provide for population growth, ignoring other factors. As a result, this business does not appear to be at peak earnings. Instead, I believe we are seeing a new baseline for earnings, though the earnings will be quite volatile, particularly if interest rates remain elevated or increase further. In summary, during the third quarter of 2022, the fund experienced a pullback in many of its core positions. I have used this pullback to moderately increase a number of our positions, which has increased our overall exposure. Our exposure is a bit more concentrated in inflation, particularly in energy, than I normally expect it to be, but those are also my favorite themes. We've expressed this view through instruments like physical uranium, long-dated oils futures, and futures options, energy equipment services companies, and land plays, which I believe should have a reduced risk of permanent impairment. I also believe we are in the early stages of this inflationary boom, and while there will be sizable volatility going forward, we are positioned well. Sincerely, Harris Kupperman. This is Dan Roller Morand Capital's third quarter 2022 letter. Dear partners and friends, in the third quarter of 2022, Moran Partners Fund returned negative 0.2% net of all fees and expenses, bringing the year-to-date performance to negative 25.4%. This has been a challenging year in the markets, and while I am disappointed with our performance this year, I believe we are still in a place from where, from which we can recover and produce acceptable long-term performance, and I have high standards when it comes to the definition of acceptable. This is especially true in light of the fact that current sentiment is terrible and valuations are cheap. Many stocks are pricing in a draconian scenario, but the world is not coming to an end. That our year-to-date performance is similar to the broader indices is only accidental. Our partnership makes no effort to track the market. I aim for high, risk-adjusted absolute returns over the long term, and I believe that if I achieve these results, then outperforming the market will be a side effect. Volatility is a trade-off that we make in our quest for superior performance. It will come as no surprise that I continue to believe that one year is too short of a time period over which to judge the results of investment funds. Over the past five years, our partnership has compounded at a rate of approximately 13% net. In other words, over the past five years, the value of $1 million invested into the partnership has grown to more than $1.8 million, net of all fees and expenses. Conversely, over the past five years, $1 million invested in the iShares Russell 2000 ETF, a low-cost ETF that aims to track the performance of the popular Russell 2000 small cap index, has grown to less than $1.2 million. While many have thrown in the towel on value investing, I still believe it is the most rational who wants to know who wants to knowingly overpay for things. It's the most rational strategy, especially in a catalyst-laden special situations in less efficient parts of the market. My favorite hunting ground for smaller cap stocks seems like an especially attractive corner of the market right now. 
I am finding many solid yet under the radar companies trading at single digit free cash flow multiples that I believe have long double digit growth runways. They don't need multiple expansion to produce mid 20s compounded returns and to therefore be potential three year doubles. If sentiment turns and multiples expand, some could double faster than that. As always, there is a laundry list of macroeconomic worries that is capturing a lot of attention, including inflation, the Fed, interest rates, China, Russia, the U.S. consumer, gasoline prices, European power prices, and more. Near-term earnings estimates are still too high for many companies. The dichotomy between poor sentiment and cheap valuations on the one hand and some very real economic concerns on the other hand has made for a challenging decision-making environment. In the face of uncertainty, I continue to return to my philosophy, framework, and process. Throughout 2022, I've continued to focus on doing good research, I've remained disciplined with respect to valuation, and I've stayed humble in light of a challenging backdrop. After running with reduced net exposure for the majority of the third quarter, our cash balance exceeded 40% following our Claris sales during mid-August, which more on below. I've recently been adding additional exposure to a number of smaller cap value stocks that I think are priced attractively despite the weak macroeconomic outlook, all of those above worries. As usual, I continue to focus on special situations, stocks with catalysts, and companies for which I think I have a differentiated viewpoint about what what is priced in. My conversations with companies over the past months indicate that many are not seeing developments that justify some of the carnage we have seen in their stock prices. Currently, there seems to be a disconnect. Either fundamentals are going to get dramatically worse for many companies, or many stocks are too cheap. I believe it is among the best times in recent years to be investing with a multi-year time horizon. Portfolio update. At the quarter end, our top five positions were API Group, APG, Cadre Holdings, CDRE, Claris, CLAR, and uh, Correos de Portugal, CTT, as well as an undisclosed position. Claris. Claris has been a long-time top-five position, so it may seem from the outside like the holding is on autopilot. It is not. I frequently re-underwrite all of our positions as new information comes in and as stock prices change. Claris is no exception. For Claris, a lot of new information came in during the third quarter, though much of it non-fundamental, and the stock price also changed a lot in both directions. Claris entered the third quarter at approximately $19 per share, increased to a high of $29 per share, and later fell as low as $12 per share. It increased by 50%, then declined by 50%, all in a few months. While I generally invest with a long horizon and try to be patient when warranted, I am also pragmatic. Our fund's smaller size allows me to be nimble when warranted. Given the speed and magnitude of Claris's increase during mid-August, accompanied by a lack of substantive change in the fundamentals, I attributed Claris's rise to non-fundamental factors. And then there was a footnote here, likely a short squeeze or gamma squeeze as a number of hedge funds started wildly trading Claris options and stock during the quarter, uh, parentheses, option volume exploded more than a hundredfold. At one point, three funds collectively had long exposure to almost 50% of Claris' shares. And that's the end of the footnote. And took advantage of the stock's move higher to trim our positions meaningfully. By August 19th, we owned the fewest number of shares that we have owned in years. Recently, we took advantage of the volatility in the other direction, adding back to our position at less than half the price at which we had just sold the weeks prior. Claris is certainly facing several headwinds, including a promotional retail environment, a weak euro and Australian dollar, and weakness in new car volumes, which impacts its rhino rack business.
but I don't believe that these headwinds justify the current stock price. Claris's enterprise value is around $600 million. If Rhino Rack is worth around $200 million, about eight times EBITDA, and Sierra slash Barnes is worth around $200 million, five times EBITDA, the market is implying that the Black Diamond equipment brand is worth just $200 million, under 0.8 times sales and roughly six times EBITDA. Another way of framing valuation is that the market is paying a reasonable price for Black Diamond and Rhino Rack and that we are getting Sierra and Barnes for free. In aggregate, Claris is trading at around 7.5 times EBITDA and at a double-digit normalized cash earnings yield. Given the valuation, the quality of Claris's brands, the long-term growth outlook, the aligned management team, the recent insider purchases, the share repurchase authorization, the partly non-fundamental set of events that led to the sell-off, and the continued high short interest, 8 million shares are almost a third of the float. I believe this is an attractive situation. API Group. We have owned API Group shares for over two years, having initially purchased our position during the first half of 2020 during COVID. Recent additional purchases moved it into our top five positions. API Group is a holding company for a group of safety, engineering, and industrial services businesses operating globally with roots dating back to 1926. The company is a market leader in a number of niche industries, fire safety and specialty contracting, and in many countries in which it operates. It has significant recurring revenue and is capital light. I believe that API's management are good operators and capital allocators. API Group had an interesting path to becoming a public, a publicly traded stock. Its life began as a UK-domiciled SPAC. Following the despacking merger, shares were delisted in the UK and began to trade on the OTC marketplace, or pink sheets, in the US. Combine this non-standard path to market, non-standard trading marketplace, and the COVID-related market decline, and it should come as no surprise that APG, quote, broke, close quote, its listing price, ultimately trading as low as the mid-single digits. This was a unique special situation setup. And while I didn't take a huge position, I started buying shares at this point, while the market cap was around $900 million, and the ticker at the time was JJAQF. The shares were uplisted to the New York Stock Exchange in May 2020. By the end of 2021, they had climbed north of $25 per share. I shrank the position size as the stock climbed, bringing it to 3% of capital at year-end 2021. By the end of the third quarter of this year, the stock had fallen by almost half from its highs, and I started adding again. In the mid-teens, API Group's market cap is just north of $3.5 billion. Looking out several years, EBITDA should grow from $600 to $700 million, close to $1 billion, driven by organic growth and margin expansion. And net debt should fall to around $2 billion. Bulls might argue that the business, based on comparable transactions and business quality, should trade at around an 18 to 20 times multiple. But even if the stock only garners a lower 10 to 13 multiple, it should still be a double or a triple roughly $35 to $45 per share. Correos de Portugal, ticker symbol CTT. I laid out the thesis on CTT in more depth in recent letters, but here's a quick recap. CTT's market cap is $430 million, and its enterprise value is around $500 million. The company is on track to generate more than $120 million of EBITDA this year, putting its valuation at around four times EBITDA. Its own bank, or it owns a bank with book value of over $200 million and real estate conservatively worth another $200 million. The company plans to monetize both of these assets, the bank likely via an external investment followed by a spin, and the real estate with a private equity partner via a fund structure. I expect an update on both fronts in the coming quarterly investor report. 
The stock is attractive even without the potential catalyst of unlocking the sum of the parts value. CTT is the monopoly postal carrier in Portugal with a new government contract that allows for inflation pass-through. E-commerce penetration in Portugal lags that of Spain and the rest of Northern Europe, but is catching up. These factors should mute any European-wide economic weakness. At its analyst day earlier this year, CTT guided to 2025 EBITDA of 160 million to 180 million based on annual 7 to 10% revenue growth. The market does not believe this guidance. It is not even close to being priced in. In fact, while I think the company has a sound rationale for its guidance, it is currently priced for revenue declines. Finally, CTT has been buying back stock aggressively. Its share count is down from 150 million shares to 143.5 million. If the stock remains this cheap, again, the market is valuing the core business for essentially nothing after giving credit to the bank and real estate, the company will likely continue to take advantage of market sentiment by continuing to buy back shares. Beyond the top five, we have recently added a few new positions. One, a specialty industrial distributor, market cap 500 to 750 million, that was formed via a three-way merger that has yet to showcase the benefits of the combination. The stock remains relatively unknown, and it trades at a large discount to peers and at a cheap absolute valuation, a solidly double-digit free cash flow yield. The second company, an energy services company, think picks and shovels for the en- for the energy industry, market cap 200 to 400 million. That is trading at under three times my estimate of 2023 cash flow. It has delevered significantly and is about to turn on the share buybacks. Third, a financial services company, market cap 750, 750 million to 1 billion, with history of growth and shareholder value creation, whose stock is whose stock is pricing in a severe recession. I'm working on an interesting event-driven special situation as well. I never know when these types of situations are going to emerge, but these have tended to be among the best sources of of risk-adjusted returns for the partnership. Again, I'm excited by what I'm coming across in my favorite hunting grounds, though, as always, I have no idea what the market may do in the short term. Conclusion. You and your fellow limited partners have continued to be a major competitive advantage for our fund. This year, our partnership has had no redemptions and a steady stream of capital additions, new partners joining and existing partners dollar cost averaging additional capital during the period of market weakness. The fact that I don't have to sell positions to raise capital or even field panic calls enables me to continue to stay level-headed and execute my strategy during periods of volatility. Thank you. I continue to have the majority of my family's investment capital invested in the fund alongside yours. I am working diligently to protect it and grow it. Sincerely, Dan Roller. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.